Well, turn with me to Leviticus 1. Leviticus chapter 1. And before we really get into the text, I want to point out that I, I feel like you have earned the privilege of us walking through Leviticus together. You've earned that by virtue of your discipline to be about the business of listening to the preached word and in trying to engage your minds. I don't think this is a text I would preach anywhere else, to be quite honest with you. Um, especially if I, if I was asked to be a guest in a church, this would, this would ensure that I'm never invited back again because it does take a discipline. It does take a decision on your part to engage your mind and to think and to believe with all of your heart when the Apostle Paul said that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that we really believe that. Because as I pointed out last week, the book of Leviticus is very often the, the butt of jokes about the being boring or being something that's unintelligible. Now, I, for one, don't want to engage in those jokes. This is the very Word of God, and it is here for a purpose And I believe by the time we're done tonight, as has happened in my own heart, as I've been studying ahead here in Leviticus, I believe that we will be astounded at how applicable to our lives right now at this moment the book of Leviticus is. And so I trust the Lord and his spirit to help us. And I I trust you because you have demonstrated over many years now a, a dedication to the preached word and to listen and to engage your minds. Well, we're coming now to this section of the Law of Moses in the Pentateuch, which, as I've mentioned, that many Christians are quick to dismiss. Well, this is irrelevant. This is a non-issue. I'm part of the New Covenant community of Christ. And as we've said numbers of times in our Pentateuch series, the, the fact that we're not bound by the specific laws of the Old Covenant, that doesn't negate the fact that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. And I would say this even, that a deliberate ignorance of the concepts presented here in Leviticus 1 through 7, I think when you put that forward as, I don't want to deal with that, the sacrificial system has nothing to do with me, I think that's actually contributed to a lack of weightiness, the lack of gravitas, heaviness that we put on the idea of presenting ourselves to God. And in the last few decades, it has become uh, more and more the, the thing, the in thing to attempt to present ourselves to God as informally and as flippantly as possible to take advantage of that grace. It seems that our goal is always to lower God and to make him accessible by means of being informal and overly familiar. And I know that's hard for us to swallow as New Covenant Christians. You might say, but in Christ, I can be as familiar with God as I want to. Really? Have you ever tried when you were a little kid calling your dad by his first name? I tried it once and I never forgot it. I couldn't sit down for about three days after that. I walked in and said, hey, Bert, and whammo. And he told me, you can call me dad, you can call me daddy. You will not call me by my first name because father or papa or dad yes is an expression of relationship but it's also a term of respect and deference when you pray do you ever begin your prayers hey big guy when addressing god no of course not when was the last time you prayed on your knees when was the last time you consciously confessed sin before driving into the church parking lot because you're about to meet with god's people before the lord 
When was the last time you consciously searched your heart for anger at someone before entering into prayer? When was the last time you consciously searched your heart before entering into corporate worship? How about consciously thanking the Lord that it's by the sacrifice of Christ that you dare to open your Bible, that you dare to sing from our hymnal, that you dare to participate with the people of God in worship? My hope tonight is that this section of Scripture, which is so instructive regarding the sacrificial system of Israel, that this will lower our view of ourselves and elevate our view of God and understand the relationship between the holiness of God and the necessity of sacrifice. As I mentioned last time, every message in our Leviticus part of the series is going to involve the idea of holiness because that's what Leviticus centers on. And so that's my goal tonight as we try to understand the relationship between the holiness of God and the necessity of sacrifice. I want to lower our view of ourselves and elevate our view of God. Now, I read these seven chapters numbers of times in the, in the last few weeks and tried to kind of think, how, how are we going to teach the sacrificial system in a way that's memorable with all the intricate details and so forth in the space of an hour? I, I came to the conclusion I don't think it's possible. I think if we just walk through every single detail, you'll walk out of here with your head full of facts, but not grasping the big picture. It's not difficult. You simply read through it and you can grasp what's happening here. So instead, what I want to do is have you walk away with some concepts that will humble us and honor God. And we have to start with the very foundation and basis for worship, really, before we even get into the text. And that is the relationship between holiness and sacrifice. God is holy, and therefore to have fellowship with God, you also must be holy. That's a basic concept all through the Bible. But you're not holy because you're a sinner. And so in order to have fellowship with God, to worship God, sacrifice must be made. And this goes all the way back to Genesis, to the sacrifice that God made on behalf of Adam and Eve. In fact, to the Israelite in the Old Testament, and as it should be to us, Worship without sacrifice is unthinkable. It's unthinkable. To suppose that one could approach God without any sort of sacrifice is the height of arrogance and pride. One of my mentors, Dr. Andy Snyder, former professor of theology at the Master Seminary, wrote a tremendous article on worship. And here's what he says about Leviticus. He says, quote, Leviticus presents the pattern that God established in order to facilitate holiness and remove impurity from his treasured people so that they might dwell with him in covenant fellowship. For the people to commune with God, atonement for their sin must be achieved. Atonement was accomplished by means of sacrifices which were, when offered from a heart of faith, acts of worship. And so the the sacrifice has just changed. The sacrifice we focus on now, of course, is Christ, and we will look at that in detail as we're going. But we want to examine tonight, at least in brief form, the sacrifices that the common Israelite, the the regular man, the regular woman, would offer to God on a regular basis. And again, my goal is for us to lower our view of ourselves, elevate our view of God. And so to do that, I want to give you seven themes tonight that'll kind of, I hope, help you think less of yourself And think more of God. And if all goes well, these will build on one another. They will uh, begin to form a theology for you about the greatness of God and the the lowered view of our own self. First theme, we'll call this one the call to fellowship. 
the call to fellowship. And this theme more or less encompasses the first three of the five major sacrifices. The first sacrifice, probably the one in your mind you lump most of the others into in your mind, is the burnt offering. The burnt offering. Leviticus 1, beginning in verse 1, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, and you, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons and the priests shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The next few verses give instruction that the priests are to cut up the the offering and burn it completely on the altar. I hate to tell you that if you colored a coloring page in Sunday school of a giant bowl up on top of the altar, that's not what happened. Nobody could lift it up there. So they cut it in pieces and, and consumed it before the Lord. The offering could be a bull. If you read on, it could be a sheep or a goat. It could even be turtle doves or pigeons. Can I put it this way? If you weren't weren't of the means to have a bull or even a sheep or a goat you could go out into the pasture and catch a pigeon and the lord would receive that offering and there's a second sacrifice still under the theme of the call to fellowship and this is we would call the dedication offering the dedication offering sometimes it's called the grain offering sometimes because of the grain it's called the cereal offering that's the one i learned as a child and i never understood that because all i could picture was putting a box of lucky charms up on an altar and for me that would have been a sacrifice that would have been a big deal but it's a grain or cereal offering but more properly the dedication offering chapter 2 verse 1 when anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the lord his offering shall be of fine flour He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. The rest of chapter 2 outlines what the dedication offering could consist of. It could be the fine flour, the olive oil, incense, baked bread, even the first fruits from crops. But there is one restriction. Verse 11 of chapter 2. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. All throughout the Old and the New Testaments. Leaven, yeast, is said to represent sin and impurity. And even so, so even the grain offering must be without blemish. There is no sin brought along with it. And you notice in this particular offering, there's no blood involved. This is an expression of gratitude in response to forgiveness and God's love. It was intended as a, as a token, or maybe we might call it a memorial, showing that I'm offering everything I have to you. Everything that I own is yours. It was a free will offering, given in love, given in thankfulness. Then there was a third sacrifice, still under the theme of the call to fellowship. And this is the peace offering. The peace offering. And again, we see the theme of an offering without blemish, bringing something that that is unharmed. 
Chapter 3, verse 1, if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, he, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. The rest of the chapter outlines specifically what is to be done with various animals that are offered, whether it's an adult or a lamb or a goat and so forth. But this offering is unique. It's rightly often called the thanksgiving offering. Leviticus 7, which I've preached this text before, Leviticus 7, 11 through 17, indicates that the, the sacrifice is to be eaten by the worshiper and by implication by his entire family, his whole clan. This is what's unique about this sacrifice. This sacrifice, it's, if it's called the peace offering, it's not to make peace with God, but it's an expression of thanksgiving that peace has been made with God. You see the difference? It's a great celebration. In fact, this is a feast that could last two days, and it was a sign of communion and fellowship with the Lord. So here to start off with, we have the burnt offering, the dedication offering, the peace offering. And broadly speaking, those three sacrifices were a call to fellowship with God. We're going to come back to those in a moment, but keep those first three in one group. They're, they are the call to fellowship, and we'll build on this. There's a second theme to lower our view of ourselves and elevate our view, our view of God. We'll call this one the condition of restoration. The condition of restoration. And this theme more or less encompasses the final two of the five major sacrifices. The fourth sacrifice then, the first one under the theme of condition of restoration, the sin offering. The sin offering. This is a long section starting in chapter 4, verse 1, going all the way through chapter 5, verse 13. And it encompasses a very specific topic. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally or by mistake in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. And it goes on to describe other, other offerings to be made in particular circumstances. So this entire offering, the sin offering, deals with the subject of unintentional sin and the sacrifices that are appropriate to this. It deals with the unintentional sins of individuals, of priests, of tribal leaders, and of the nation as a whole, and there are numbers of types of sins listed as needing atonement. And we could turn over to chapter 5, verse 13. This is the summary of this whole section concerning the sin offering. Chapter 5, verse 13. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed in any one of these things, and he shall be forgiven, and the remainder shall be for the priest as in the grain offering. So then you have a fifth sacrifice. This is the second one under the theme of condition of restoration. And this one is, is the guilt offering. The guilt offering. The specific instructions for the guilt offering begin in chapter 5, verse 14. But really the crux of the issue, again, is unintentional sin. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. 
He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. And so these two sacrifices, these final two here, the sin offering and the guilt offering, these constitute the, the condition for restoration. There are conditions involved. Now, we can understand these two themes, the, the call to fellowship with God and the condition of restoration. They're presented burnt offering, dedication offering, peace offering. That's the call to fellowship. And then the sin offering and the burnt offering, the condition of restoration. So you have fellowship first, restoration second. To your New Testament ears, does that sound a little bit out of order? It does. It sounds like it ought to go the other way. And so let's explore that. That brings us to our third theme to lower our view of ourselves and elevate our view of God. Let's look at now the connection of fellowship and restoration. We'll we'll keep building this theology here. What's the connection of fellowship and restoration? The order in which the sacrifices are presented here, they, they begin with an emphasis on fellowship, not on sin and depravity. And then the means of that fellowship is given. To put it in terms we can readily relate to, this is a gospel presentation which says, God has made fellowship with him available to you, but you are a sinner and need the sacrifice of Christ to enjoy this fellowship. It is a very positive, uplifting gospel presentation. It is not the presentation, which is true, but it is not the presentation that first says, you're a filthy sinner and in need of the sacrifice of Christ, and then you can have fellowship with God. Either message is true, but Leviticus presents the positive benefits first, and then the means to those benefits second. It's very gracious, very kind. Now, some have said that the sacrifices are presented in order of importance. There's absolutely nothing in the text to say that one is more important than the other. Generally, they're presented in the same order. Burnt offering, dedication offering, peace offering, sin offering, guilt offering. Chapter 6, verse 8 to the end of chapter 7, which consists of specific instructions to priests. It presents a slightly different order, but with the burnt offering and the dedication offering still mentioned first. And so... All the way, first seven chapters, burnt offering, dedication offering is always up front. Here's the fellowship you can have with God. Here is how to have fellowship and then the means to that fellowship. But once you move past Leviticus 7, there's a third order. It's not a variation of the first first two at all. A third order which becomes very consistent. And theologians have called this the procedural order. And now we're going to see that the connection between the call to fellowship and the condition of restoration becomes much clearer. That the worshiper may only fellowship with God on the condition of restoration of dealing with sin. In the ceremony of the ordination of the priests in Leviticus 8, the sin offering comes before the burnt offering. In other words, restoration must come before fellowship. Now the order is switched. Leviticus, the Leviticus order of the priest's offering, you have the sin offering, the burnt offering, and then the peace offering. Leviticus 9, the order of the priest's offering, the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering. Leviticus 9, the order of the people's offering, sin offering, burnt offering, peace offering. In other words, restoration first, fellowship second. Restoration first, fellowship second. 
All the way in Numbers chapter 6, you have the vow of the Nazarite, the order that the priests offer on, the, on behalf of the, the one making this vow. Sin offering first, burnt offering second, peace offering last. Hezekiah's cleansing of the, of the temple, 2 Chronicles 29. Sin offering first, burnt offering second, and then all the other offerings. And so you see, the, once you get past Leviticus 1 through 7, which very graciously presents fellowship and then restoration, now the order is switched and you must have restoration in order to have fellowship. And while Leviticus begins with fellowship and celebration, followed by the restoration, really the practice of the Old Testament was to put restoration first. And then you went on to fellowship and celebration. Let me put it this way. To talk about fellowship and communion and holiness with God while ignoring unconfessed sin is impossible. And in fact, it is not permitted. The sin offering is sometimes called the purification offering. The one that in practice comes first. Sometimes it's called the purification offering. And here's the interesting side note. Sometimes the sin offering is offered even when no specific sin has been committed. It is simply to be pure before the Lord as a sinner. The Nazarite, Numbers chapter 6, leaves a sin or purification offering upon ending the time of his vow. There's no sin involved with that, yet he offers a sin offering. A new mother, Leviticus 12, must bring a sin offering to be pure before the Lord. So let me suggest to you then a reordering of the sacrifices based on these later orders and the fact that restoration must come before fellowship. Sin offering first, purification. We can debate the order of the other three, but definitely last, the culmination of the sacrificial system is the peace offering, the celebration meal. Purification, peace offering. Sin offering, peace offering. Now, do we have an equivalent to this connection here? The sin offering, the purification of the worshiper before coming into fellowship with God. Absolutely, we have an equivalent. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This isn't salvation forgiveness. This is cleansing of daily sin. This is the fundamental starting point of all preparation for worship, that we do not enter into worship without confession. We do not enter into worship with unresolved issues of sin. In fact, the Apostle Paul warned the Corinthians that some of them were guilty of presuming upon the Lord. They were coming to worship with unconfessed sin, coming with pride of heart, coming in what he called in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven an unworthy manner. How about the peace offering, the celebration meal? Well, of course, for us, this is the Lord's table. We had a peace offering, as it were, this morning. A remembrance of the sacrifice necessary to present us holy before the Lord. And the Apostle Paul gives the same order. The sin or purification offering followed by the peace offering. Did you know that? Listen to this. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. Let a person examine himself. Purification. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Fellowship. It's the same order. We don't come to worship with unconfessed sin. And so Leviticus presents the order of hope, fellowship followed by restoration, but in practice, restoration must precede fellowship. So you might expect that these two groups of sacrifices, the fellowship sacrifices and the restoration sacrifices, would be different. 
and they are. And that brings us to our fourth theme to lower our view of ourselves and elevate our view of God. I want to show you the contrasts of fellowship and restoration. There, there are contrasts between the fellowship and the restoration offerings. And I want to just give you some, some differences here. I don't have titles for these differences. They're a little bit complex, but I think you'll get the point that there are significant ways to contrast these two groups of sacrifices. The restoration, or the fellowship offerings, rather, of uh, Numbers 1, 2, and 3, and then the, the last two, the restoration, the first three, the fellowship offerings, these end with an effect. And here's the effect. Ten times we hear this, that it is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That these offerings, the fellowship offerings, are pleasing to him. But that phrase only happens one time in the last two sacrifices, the restoration. The the ones that are necessary, really, spiritually speaking, first. But in those last two, we hear this nine times. The priest shall make atonement and he shall be forgiven. Make atonement, be forgiven, atonement, forgiven, atonement, forgiven. Nine times. In other words, the first three sacrifices of fellowship are said to give pleasure to God. It literally says in Hebrew, it gives God ease or rest. It's the same root word that we get the name Noah. That he would give rest to his people. The last two sacrifices, restoration, they focus on what the worshiper needs to come into fellowship with God, and that is forgiveness. So can I put it this way? The, the, the last two restoration are, are very serious, is very serious business. And the first three are the time, is the time of celebration, the time of communion, the time of joy. Let me put this in theological terms some of you will appreciate. You must first have propitiation, the satisfaction of God, in order to have justification. The position of the worshiper as forgiven and accepted and received by God. God is not said to receive pleasure from worship until sin has been dealt with. Let me put this in terms we can understand. Don't open your Bible or your hymnal until you have confessed sin because he will not receive pleasure from your worship. There's another difference between the fellowship and the restoration offerings. The first three, the fellowship offerings, aren't identified by a specific occasion. There's not a specific violation which elicits the sacrifice. There's spontaneous acts of worship offered in praise and thanksgiving. Look back with me, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd. Chapter 2, when anyone brings a grain offering. Verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering. These are voluntary. Now, yes, For the burnt offering, chapter 1, verse 4 says it is to make atonement for him, but it's still voluntary. And you have this significant phrase, he shall be forgiven. That's not there. That's not there in the burnt offering. Why? Because he's already been forgiven through the sin offering. But then in contrast to that, the restoration offerings, these are identified by very specific occasions of sin, which most definitely will occur. So the sin offering and the guilt offering are not voluntary. They are mandatory. And so in the restoration, there is a sense of it being mandatory, whereas in the fellowship offering, there's more freedom for them to be offered in love. Here's another difference in vocabulary. In the first three, the fellowship offering, there are some prominent words that are found. The idea of bringing or presenting something 
presenting and offering, when you have bringing, presenting, and offering, in those first three sacrifices, the fellowship sacrifices, those ideas of bringing, presenting, offering happen 52 times. There's this sense of generosity of bringing, presenting, bringing my offering to the Lord. The last two, they only happen eight times. Those differences are not by accident. There's much less of an emphasis on that voluntary nature. The emphasis on, in the fellowship offering is much more on devotion of bringing something in thankfulness and in celebration and the emphasis on the, in the restoration offering is much more on a functional idea that you need to have your sins forgiven. What does this mean? It means that we're to be mindful of the weight and the penalty of sin before we may enjoy the release and the forgiveness of God. I have one of my, one of my favorite stories in Scripture. I'm so drawn to it because it, it's so instructive to me is Zacchaeus, the little tax collector who was convicted of his sinfulness in his heart. Luke 19 records that when he met Jesus, he did not immediately enter into fellowship with him. First, there was business to be done. Luke 19, verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood. This is, a, this is official. I am standing before a judge, as it were. And he stood before the Lord and he said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What has he done? He just brought his sin and his guilt offering. And then Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house. And then they fellowship together in the house of Zacchaeus. But not before he stood before the Lord and admitted and confessed his sin. Well, that brings us to our fifth theme to lower our view of ourselves and elevate our view of God. The corruption of humanity. The corruption of humanity. To the one who thinks that perhaps you aren't quite as bad as other people, I want to return to Leviticus 4 and show you the various unintentional sins to which we're prone and for which we need the cleansing of God in Christ. There seems to be about seven categories of unintentional sins. First category we'll call giving unknown offense. Giving unknown offense. Chapter 4, verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any of them, and then there are instructions given. Look, if you're married, you know what the unknown offense is, right? It's you're suddenly sensing a glacier between you and your spouse, and you don't know why. What usually happened? You what? You said something, Right? And you didn't know it. Well, if you're a woman, maybe you knew it. If you're a man, you were ignorant as a rock. And you just walked around saying stupid stuff and you didn't know. What does Christ command us to do when we are the offended one? When we've been offended? We have two options. First Peter 4 gives us the option of love covers a multitude of sins. That's the best option. But we also have the option in Ephesians 4, speak the truth in love. To let somebody know what their unintentional sin is. In other words, we all sin in unknown ways. And when it becomes known, Proverbs twelve fifteen says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but the wise man listens to advice. And so there's the, the unintentional, the unknown offense category. There's a second category we'll call following the crowd. Following the crowd, chapter 4, verse 13 if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally. 
when many are doing something that's wrong, it can be easy to think it's okay, right? When all my neighbors are not paying their taxes, it must be okay. By the way, this is how church splits often happen because one or two begin some sort of trouble and they gain a following and more and more talk happens and because the group grows, they feel justified. They're following the crowd. And so that's an unintentional sin. Here's another category. Thinking high position exempts us from humility. Thinking high position exempts us from humility. Chapter 4, verse 22 when a leader sins doing unintentionally any one of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord is God ought not to be done. How easy it is if you hold a position of prominence either in reality or if you're a legend in your own mind to believe that you're different, that you're above, that you're separate. That is a sin. Here's a fourth category, the opposite. Thinking your low position exempts you from humility. Thinking your low position exempts you from humility. Chapter 4, verse 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done. This is the mistake of making yourself a victim by characterizing yourself as mistreated by those in authority. This is the person who continually complains about a boss or about a supervisor or about a husband, about anyone in authority. But the sin of this great internal pride, this isn't restricted to those in high positions of influence. The lowest of the low can be the proudest of the proud. If you struggle, for example, with materialism, you don't need to have a nickel to your name to be materialistic. What you have and what you crave are not related to one another. And so low position doesn't exempt us from humility. Here's another category of unintentional sin, neglecting to do right. Neglecting to do right. Chapter 5, verse 1. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. In other words, if you knew the right thing to do, but you stayed silent, you didn't do what was right. This is an unintentional sin, neglecting to do what's right. This is the one I would like to skip, but we are going to do it anyway. The sixth category, acting or speaking impulsively. Acting or speaking impulsively. In fact, let's just skip it. No, that would be the sin right there. Chapter 5, verse 4. Or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear. And so here you have this impulsivity. Proverbs 12, verse 18 instructs us, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Oh, how often do we do or say something that shouldn't have been done, and we we leave a trail of tears behind us. One more category of unintentional sin, underestimating what is sacred. Underestimating what is sacred. Chapter 5, verse 14 The Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, specifically speaking of all the furniture items that we looked at back in Exodus, sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord. I believe our culture in many ways has lost a sense of the sacred, lost a sense of the honor that's due to that which is set apart for for God's use. And so what do we do? We 
check our texts during worship services. We observe while others sing. We check out mentally while the word of God is read aloud or preached. If you sense that you're losing your sense of the sacred when the word of God is opened, then go back to Nehemiah chapter 8 and see that the people stood and they shouted amen and they fell on their faces before God because somebody opened a Bible. There's a sense of the sacred. We may flippantly decide, I don't feel like going to church today. What does that mean? It means you're spontaneously standing up God without any good reason. Now, do you see how any claim to be a better person than another is ridiculous? Today, you have sinned in ways you were completely oblivious of. And how desperately we need the blood of Christ which covers all of our sins. I mean, I don't know what the circumstances of your last moments on this earth will be, but it's pretty likely that your last act on this earth may be an unintentional sin. And how blessed it is to have the assurance of the cross by which God has atoned for every single sin, including the final one. It's already taken care of. Let me show you a sixth theme. Lower our view of ourselves. Elevate our view of God. We'll call this one the correctness of worship. The correctness of worship. We went through and just looked at common components to all the sacrifices, what they all have in common. And I found that there are some clear lessons about where our hearts are in our acts of worship. Where, where is your heart? What, what makes for correct worship? And I just want to give you a little list here of where your heart ought to be to make worship correct. You have a heart of giving, a heart of giving. Worship involves bringing a gift. To worship without bringing something was not only unheard of, it was prohibited. How would you like it if at the door our ushers were posted with the giving bags and you had to give something in order to get in? I know in our New Testament mind that seems ridiculous, but that's exactly what worship was here. You don't come worship God for free. Why would you go to church for free and pay 10 bucks to go to a movie? That doesn't make sense. How about the cost of the gift? Well, God is very gracious. It depended on the worshiper's means. They were all to give a gift, but it was scaled according to ability. The burnt offering could be a bull. It could be a sheep or a goat. or As I mentioned earlier, it could be a bird that you could catch out in the, out in the, the yard. The principle wasn't equal offering. The principle was equal sacrifice. So there's a heart of giving. What else made for correct worship? A heart of drawing near. A heart of drawing near. I think this is very instructive for us. That we don't show up to worship to be passive. To wait for God to zap us with something. Although that may happen. We show up to worship to draw near to God. The sacrifices are referred to many times using one of several Hebrew words for offering, but one of them, korban, which is, which is transliterated a couple times in the New Testament also, korban, that offering, it means something which is brought near. And there's an emphasis with this offering. There's a nearness, there's a proximity, there's a relationship between God and mankind. When a young man is courting a young woman, why does he bring her flowers instead of a carburetor? Because he wants to draw near. He wants to create a bridge between the two. And so the offering wasn't a rote exercise. It was a conscious act of drawing near to God. James makes this connection in James 4 verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
And look at this connection here. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The act of confession and purity and cleansing draws us near to God. The correctness of worship also includes a heart of integrity. A heart of integrity. The animal that is offered is to be without blemish. Hebrew word tamim, it's used numbers of times, but it's also the same word. Tamim is used to describe Noah. Genesis 6 used to describe Abraham. Genesis 17 used to describe Job, Job 12, and any worshiper who hopes to enter into God's presence, Psalm 15. In other words, tamim for the animal means that the tamim should be the same for the worshiper. The physical purity of the animal represented more the moral and the spiritual purity of the worshiper, which is only achieved, of course, by substitutionary sacrifice. And what does this point to? This points to the inward honesty and sincerity and integrity of the worshiper. Outward worship must be matched by inner holiness and purity and confession and integrity. Psalm 51, King David famously says in verses 16 and 17, For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. How about this heart in the, heart of, in the correctness of worship? A heart of humility. A heart of humility. The worshiper was not a passive participant or spectator. The worshiper laid his hand on the animal's head, and this is recorded numbers of times, and he was then part of the worship process. The, the laying on of the, the hands had at least two major ideas. Now, Leviticus 1 through 7 doesn't, doesn't explicitly say this, but the strong implication from other Old Testament texts is that the laying on of hands has to do with substitution, with the transference of sin, and there is certainly the atonement element here. But the other major idea, and there's actually some good arguments to say that this is the main idea on the laying on of hands from the, from the owner of the animal to the animal, the main idea is transfer of ownership. This transfer of ownership, the relinquishing of something into God's hands, the idea of saying, I have no rights over this. It is the handing over of the car keys, so to speak. This means that the one who gives more doesn't have more rights in the community than the one who gives less. All have com- completely relinquished ownership. And for example, in the church, it's expected by the Lord that those with more give more. 1 Timothy 6 says this, but this doesn't somehow buy the person more favor or, or get a pass on submission to leadership. That is really a disgusting way to, to give because it indicates an internal heart of arrogance. And at the same token, it doesn't mean that the one who is able to not give as much is treated with disdain or with lack of favor. And by the way, the worshiper was the one to kill the animal. The priest didn't do it. The worshiper did it. It made the animal useless to the worshiper except for immediate consumption and has fully turned it over to God. Can I put it this way? The gift didn't continue to work for the worshiper. Nothing that you gave was returned to you at that moment. It didn't continue to work for you. It's done. It is the Lord's. It's completely His. Call to fellowship, condition of restoration, the connection of fellowship and restoration, the contrast of fellowship and restoration, the corruption of humanity and the correctness of worship. 
I want to consider one more theme to lower our view of ourselves, elevate our view of God. This is my favorite one. We'll call this one the covering of grace. The covering of grace. Did you notice that the sacrificial system seems to make provisions only for accidental sins? Only for unintentional sin, being overcome and overwhelmed by by temptation, but not desiring to sin? Well, what about the one who's scheming? What about the one who is outward only in his religious affections? Numbers 15 says this, If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, in other words, intentionally, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. And you say, oh, that sounds really Old Testament. This is reflected in the New Testament. Hebrews 10, 26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The sacrifice of Christ is not applied to the one who has no sorrow, no confession of sin from a humble heart. There is no provision for deliberate sin. That's heavy, isn't it? But why does Leviticus make a distinction between accidental sin and deliberate sins? Because in the list of supposedly accidental sins, there are some that are clearly deliberate. Look at chapter 6 with me. See if these seem deliberate to you. Chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, nobody's ever said, What am I doing here? Why do I have all your stuff in my hands? Or if he has oppressed his neighbor or found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby. If he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it. And give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish, tamim, there it is again, out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. These are clearly deliberate. These are clearly on purpose. And yet, verse 7, and the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven. What's the difference between the deliberate sins of Numbers 15, which gets you excommunicated from the people of God and the ones that are forgiven? Well, there's a parallel passage, parallel to the end of Leviticus 5 and and the beginning of Leviticus 6 in Numbers chapter 5. You don't have to turn there, just listen. Numbers 5, verse 6. Speak to the people of Israel when a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, intentional, deliberate sins, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed 
and he shall make full restoration, restitution for what is wrong. Breaking faith with the Lord, intentional, deliberate sin, but atonement is made. What's the difference? It is repentance and confession. You ready for this? Repentance and confession moves your sin from the category of deliberate to the category of unintentional. Wow. What does the New Testament call that? New Testament calls that grace. And even God himself uses words that I don't like to use for sin, and that is he calls it a mistake. It was a mistake. Psalm 103. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Well, I would imagine that as Israel traveled the land in those early days, the sheer quantity of blood must have been overwhelming. Whenever the glory of God over the tabernacle would move, indicating to Israel that it was time to pack up and move with him, I I think in one sense the priests must have been glad to start on fresh ground because trying to keep that cleaned up must have been tough. Perhaps in hope that one day no more sacrifices would be made because sin would finally be paid for. Remember the sweetness of the fellowship offerings that so many times are said in Leviticus to be a fragrant offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, meaning the worshiper has been accepted into fellowship by God. Well, here's our delight. Our delight is that Ephesians 5 verse 2 says that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We praise God for being part of the new covenant in Christ, but it's my prayer that we'll learn from Leviticus to see ourselves as lesser and God as greater. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this powerful text. Tens of millions of gallons of blood spilled, and yet it could never be enough until the blood that was spilled on the cross at Golgotha was the final and true sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice. Never again will blood be spilled on our behalf. For the blood that Christ offered is satisfactory to you. And the fact that he was raised from the dead shows that the price, the penalty was paid in full. The fact that he has ascended into heaven in the perfection of his glory as fully man, fully God, seated at your right hand and even now interceding for us and guaranteeing our salvation until that day we come home proves that that sacrifice was infinitely greater than anything we found in the old covenant and that the Old Testament worshiper finally would come to the end of himself, perhaps wondering, when will the sacrifices be enough? When will enough shed blood have been shed to atone for my sin? Well, the answer to that question comes in Christ, the Lamb of God, slain for us. And it is in his name we pray and give you thanks. Amen.